there's anything I can tell you, is that the best place to hide is in your mind. Welcome back to Between Lewis and Lovecraft Correspondence. And I'm sitting down with Hannah. Woohoo! We're back together. We're doing it. We're doing it together for the first time. I think literally the first time since like we first, first started episode, doing yeah. the correspondence episodes. Um, welcome back, everybody, to um, another correspondence. Uh, I'm super excited for for this one today. Um, it's always exciting to actually have an author on our show about authors, um, and that's what we did. We pulled it off. We got two of them now. We did the thing. <laughs> um, with us today is S.A. Cosby. Do you want to do you want to say hi to our listeners? Yeah, it's just me, uh, S.A. Cosby. It's nice to be here. It's great for you guys to have me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, hello to everyone listening. I hope you're home, safe, warm. And as we're recording this, there's an apocalyptic snowstorm that's enveloped half the nation. So uh, hopefully no one has been... Hopefully no one has resorted to cannibalism yet, so. <laughs> nice. Not yet, but maybe by the time this episode is released. <laughs> and and I think it's interesting, uh, we're, we're getting into this interview, <laughs> and um, I, it's, I, brought, I brought the idea of, of having S.A. on with us, um, and then Hannah, like, you, like, ran with it. You were, like, more excited about this interview than I was. Yeah, I, I looked you up saw your book and I was like, yo, Tyler, can I, can I do this episode with you? <laughs> I want to talk to him. So yeah, so I, I invited myself <laughs> onto this episode basically because uh, I love your book, Blacktop Wasteland, that's out right now. Um, I just finished reading it. There was some delay because um, in the, the snowstorm that we're in right now, uh, my grandparents are staying with us and my grandpa found the book that I had left out in the kitchen and stole it from me and read it before I could finish it. So he finished it in two nights wow. and gave it very high praise. Well, I tell you, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm closing in on the grandpa demographic. That's great. Because I had somebody else say that to me the other day that their grandpa liked it. So That's hilarious. Yeah, maybe that is an important demographic to get. He, um, I, I will say, this is my first heist novel that I think I've ever read. Um, and that's way more up his alley. He's a big fan of like those paperbacks, the the thrillers, all of that stuff. So it did not surprise me that he stole my book or that he finished it in record time. I think we can get a sticker made for future prints that just say "Grandpa approved." <laughs> I would love that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe maybe we'll have to start producing. Yeah, it's like those um, Pulitzer Prize winning yeah, like yeah, uh, exactly. stickers or whatever. All those book awards will give you the Grandpa <laughs> Book Award. <laughs> I, that that that's something I aim for. I, I mean, that's something I want. I want the Grandpa approval. Yeah. I don't get many grand, Grandma's approvals on the book. I I I got a lot of uh, I, I, you know they tell you don't read your reviews like on Goodreads and Amazon and stuff like that, and they tell you that for a reason because. You can see 50 or 60 really good reviews, but you'll remember that really bad one mm. or two or three. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> there was a lady that bought uh, my first book. Yeah. There was a lady who bought my first book. And my first book is a detective novel set in the rural South called My Darkest Prayer. And it's published by a independent uh fur publisher out of uh, Maryland uh, called Intrigue Publishing. And there was a lady who bought it. And I guess she bought it. She thought it was some type of biblical reference oh, manual no. because it has the worst darkest prayer in the title. And man, this just excoriating review about how it was awful and I was awful and I was a heathen. And, but then I, the funny thing to me was she must have finished it because she referenced stuff in the end. So it's like it held your attention. So I'll take that as a win. This is the worst book I have ever read from cover to cover. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Even man. the epilogue was terrible. <laughs> I hate it. And when I pick up the sequel, I'm going to hate it. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're we're uh, we are are accustomed to re good reviews and bad reviews. We've had our own, so we get it. And uh, we made like one YouTube video, <laughs> and the comments on that YouTube video still haunt me, like six months later. So I get that. 
Tyler's a lot more sensitive than me. I like the negativity. I think it's the anonymity of social media. It emboldens people. Oh, yeah. uh, Mike Tyson said, and I tend to agree with this, that a lot of people have become too comfortable with uh, talking a lot of trash and not getting punched in the mouth. And so, you know, <laughs> I wish there was like a machine that made it so when you said something rude to somebody on social media that it instantly popped you into their house so you have to say it to their face. Yeah. I think that would change a lot of the discourse. <laughs> so uh, before we go any further, just so our, our audience has uh, some idea of, of um, who we're talking to, because obviously we know who you are a little bit more. Hannah's read your book. You and I have spoken a little bit through social media, um, not popped each other in the face, so that's good. Um but do you want to uh, just kind of give a, an overview of who you are and, and you know, basically a, a lowdown of you on, on our audience? Yeah. Um, so basically, my name is S.A. Cosby. My real name is Sean Cosby. I write under S.A. Cosby. And I'm a crime and mystery writer from southeastern Virginia. Uh, I've been writing seriously since I was like about 21 or 22 uh, and had smatterings of uh I don't know on a call of success, but I, I had a little smatterings of publishing wins here and there. Um, I started out originally writing horror and sci-fi and in 2011, I started writing crime fiction. Um, basically, uh, what happened was I wasn't having much, much success with my fantasy and horror fiction and a friend of mine who's a belly dancer went to New York City and after her performance, her and her troupe went to a bar and she met a guy named Todd Robinson. And for those listening, Todd Robinson was the editor and publisher of a really great quarterly crime magazine called Thug Lit. It was around for about 10 years. It's no longer with us, unfortunately. But um, she was telling him about me and was telling him how great a writer I was. And she, so he told her, he said, well, look, when you get back home, tell him to send me a crime story. And I had never written crime stories at that time. I, I love crime stories. I'm a huge reader. I love, I read about anything, but um, I just didn't think I had what it took to write a crime story. You know, some of the great crime authors like Elmore Leonard and Dashiell Hammond and Raymond Chandler and Walter Mosley. I didn't think I was anywhere near uh, or like or other writers like Megan Abbott or Sarah Presky or uh, folks like that or Gillian Flynn. I just didn't think I had it in me. And so when she came back and told me about it, I was like, oh, what the hell? I'll write it. You know, the worst going to happen is get re it'll get rejected. And I've gotten rejected a lot. And uh, it got accepted. And that started me on my crime writing uh, career. And uh, in 2016, one of my short stories uh, that was published in Thuglet was uh, honored as one of the distinguished uh, mystery, best American mystery short stories of the year for 2016. Nice. And then in 2019, uh, my short story, The Grass Beneath My Feet, which was published in Tough Magazine, won the uh, Anthony Award for Best Short Mystery Short Story of the Year, which is like a national award given out uh, at the BoucherCon uh, Festival. And then uh, uh, that same year, my first novel, My Darkest Prayer, was published by a company called Entry Publishing, like I said previously. And then uh, the book that most people know me from, uh, Black Tide Wasteland, at, uh, published in 2020. It was accepted and published by a company called Flatiron Books, which is a subsidiary of Macmillan, which is like one of the big four or five publishers. Um, and that was like a, it was just an incredible change to my, it changed my whole life because I went from being, you know, really a, a nobody, unknown writer that, you know, other writers knew me and I knew other writers. I had a group of people that I kind of stuck with and hung with that um, supported me. And, uh, you know, Black Tie Wasteland just, it, it, it really connected with people in a way I didn't expect. And in a way that I'm very humbled that it did. And, um, you know, it, it, it just, it changed my life. It became this thing that people know me for, you know, and uh, it's gotten a lot of good reviews. Thank gosh. You got bad ones too. Everybody gets bad reviews. Um, but it's gotten some noteworthy praise, I guess. Amazon picked it as their number one thriller of the year. And it was the number three book overall. It was a New York Times editor's choice. Uh, for book of the one of the best books of the year uh, was the uh, the Miami uh, uh, the great uh, the great reviewer Aline Cargill uh, picked it as one of the best books of the year for her paper in Miami. Um, it was uh, also nominated for a Lefty Award for the Left Coast Crime Conference Book of the Year. Um, it's been on a lot of books of the year lists 
and stuff. Um, it's been nominated for Book of the Year by the American Library Association. It's got a lot of stuff that people really connected with it. Um, it's got a lot of cool blurbs from writers that I admire. Uh, uh, Dennis Lehane, Lee Chow, Walter Mosley, Jennifer Hill, Al- Jennifer Hillier, Alex Segura, Kelly Garrett. Um, really great people. Uh, Stephen King shouted it out <laughs> on a podcast. Uh uh, which was like my made my head melt. It was incredible, yeah. and so um, it's it's just this. It's become this thing that I could never have imagined it would become. And uh, they sold the movie rights to it uh, earlier uh, late last year. And uh, there's a script being written right now by a guy named Virgil Williams, who's an Oscar nominated screenwriter. Um, but yeah, it just you know it's just uh, mind blowing and very 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 humbling the way people have uh, connected with it. So I want to ask uh, a little bit about the plot and the basis of the story. So for people who maybe haven't haven't seen the book yet, haven't heard about it, um, mm-hmm. it centers around the main character, Beauregard Montage, who is a hardworking mechanic, a good dad, uh, and is trying to put his past as a, a, a crime guy, uh, the best getaway driver east of the Mississippi uh, to bed. But then the, the seemingly perfect uh, jewelry store heist comes up and uh, he feels he has no choice but to to get back in the game and uh, and get some some fast money. So where do you where did you come up for the idea for this story? Was it something that you kind of had to percolate over and, and really think up, or did it just hit you like a fast muscle car? <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea. Uh, here's the thing: there was two main influences on the book. Uh, I saw a movie. Um, in 2017 or 2016 called Hella High Water, starring Chris Pine and Ben Foster. It's a really great modern neo-noir western uh, by these two brothers who are, who are dirt poor and they live in Texas and their their land is mortgaged to the bank and about a week before their the land is going to be repossessed or, or sold out from under them, they find that there's oil on the land and so have to figure out a way to pay the mortgage so that the, that the, the land doesn't get taken from them. And it, that movie talks about poverty and class struggle and, and tragic and toxic masculinity and the, you know, the nature of violence. And I came out of that movie really wanting to write a story like that, but from the perspective of people I knew growing up, uh, I wanted to set it in African-American, African-American community in a rural part of the South. And I wanted to tell that story through their eyes and through the, that prism. And then the other big influence was I read a book called Winter's Bone by Daniel Woodrell, um, which is a, a crime story that takes place in Appalachia, which is not very far from where I live. And so uh, those two, you know, kind of disparate forms of media gave me the inspiration but really it's a story you know Beauregard's story is he's trying he's a he's a he's a beast of of two natures you know he's he on the one hand he's this really good like you said dad and father he loves his two boys he loves his wife he loves his daughter from a previous relationship he loves his problematic mother who's he has this very tough exterior but is a, a broken person on the inside he loved the memory of his father who disappeared when he was a young kid but on the other hand he's just you know incredibly meticulous and skilled and oftentimes brutal getaway driver a man who is easily acquainted with violence and he doesn't want to be that guy and what happens is forces around him sort of force his hand um, and he goes back to what he knows best like he owns a mechanic shop but the mechanic shop is failing because a new and more technologically advanced competitors moved into town. Uh, his mother's in a nursing home, and they're about to kick her out because there's some kind of clerical error with her public, with her uh, Medicare. Um, his daughter from a previous relationship wants to go to college, but she doesn't have the money for the first semester. His wife and his sons want a new home. They want to move out of the mobile home they live in. Uh, like his wife said, you know, he says his wife wants a house that's not on wheels. And so there's all these stressors that are. Are, are pressing on him. And so what do we do when we have that kind of stress? We go back to what we know and what he knows is driving cars and planning heists. And so he's not a, a hero, but he's not a villain. I think he's like an anti-hero. And so I wanted to talk about how race and class and poverty kind of forces people to the margins. But I also wanted to talk about 
driving fast cars and, and planning heists and the excitement, the adrenaline rush that com- comes with that. But what ended up happening was I also was, I talked about, it was very cathartic for me about my own relationship with my father and about the difficulty that men have sometimes communicating, not just their feelings, but communicating with those around them and communicating their frailty and their fragility. And so it's, 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 a, you know, it's a really, hopefully exciting book. Uh, like I said, there's fast car chases and shootouts and people who get brutalized with, you know, car t- uh, with tools and wrenches and stuff. But <laughs> I, hopefully people also take away from it the idea that it's really, really, really hard to be the best version of yourself and everything around you is conspiring against you. I know um, an author that I've spoken to before, he said that he he had written probably like five different novels. Uh, none of them got picked up. None of them got sold. It wasn't until he wrote a book that he wrote for himself to, to help kind of transform himself a little bit. And he put his own problems and, and issues into this book. And the main character, or rather the, the situation was one that helped him change as a person or resolve who he was. Um, and it wasn't till he did that, that he sold his first book because that's when people are truly invested in the stories. Do you think that that's, that's why people are, are so taken with your novel because you've put so much of yourself into it? I think that's a part of it. I think, you know, there's a, there's a rawness to the book because as I wrote it, I was really, you know, I was not to be gross, but I was picking at some scabs, you know, metaphorically speaking. And I, and I, you know, I needed to deal with some things a way that, uh, was healthy in a, a way that was not pathological. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I think I think the connection is that I, we're at a place in a, at a point in a time where people understand that. There's a rapper uh, named Method Man from the Wu-Tang Clan, and he has a song called Bring the Pain. And somebody asked him one time, why did you title it Bring the Pain? He said, because pain is the one thing everybody understands. Mm. Whether you're, a, you know, whether you're a, a Wall Street Tycoon, or whether you're, you know, a, a, a stray dog, you understand pain. Nobody wants to get kicked, and I think there's a lot of pain in Blacktop Wasteland. And I think that people understand that. I think that makes it palatable to people because everybody understands. You may not be a getaway driver from the South with a missing dad and a, a problematic mom, but you know what it feels like oh, when I, the person that you look up to. I thought you were writing um, about me specifically when yeah. you wrote this. <laughs> like I thought you had like learned about my life and you yeah. just put it on the page <laughs> I, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people you know I get a lot of emails from people that have read the book or I get like people from on Twitter that are comment on the book and that's one of the things they talk about is like oh man this this could be my life or this is my dad's life or my uncle's mm-hmm. life or my mom's life I understand why you know I understand you know that that sense of dread when you're when you're trying to pay like the electric bill or you're trying to make ends meet, you know, it's a choice between, you know, the rent or braces for your kid. And so, you know, I lived that life. Like I said, I grew up uh, really, really poor. I grew up in abject poverty. I didn't have a, I didn't have indoor plumbing until I was 16. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I, I grew up around people who, who suffered that, but also didn't let that destroy them. You know, even though we were poor, and even though it was the times where we had to really, really stretch a dollar, you know, and you know, we squeezed like my mom would say, she squeezed a dollar bill to like boogers shot out of George Washington's nose. But <laughs> we enjoyed ourselves. We loved each other. We loved that there was a, a incredible sense of love and camaraderie in, in in the house that I grew up in. And so I wanted to illustrate that too. I don't think I, I think too many people get caught up in what I like to call trauma porn where it's like they just want to see the the you know the the, the incredible existential sturm and drang of the, of someone's existence but nobody's sad all the time you know it doesn't yeah. rain every day and so i wanted to show Beauregard as a father and you know playing with his kids and making silly jokes and flirting with his wife and you know and, and so that that also narratively served narratively serves a purpose because when you set it up, they're like, "Wow, he has a really good relationship with his kids, and he loves his daughter, even though there's some distance there, and he he's still madly in love with his wife. You know, he wants to take her on a date." So you set that up, and so then when the hell comes, 
it makes the reader that much more involved because you've you've fallen in love with these characters or you have connected with these characters. Yeah. And so then, you know, good writing is putting your character in a tree and throwing rocks and bricks at them. And the more rocks and bricks, the more you care about the person, the harder those rocks and bricks hit. And I think that's really important to making Beauregard a likable character because, like you said earlier, he's not a good guy. He's an anti-hero, really. Uh, he's he's killed a lot of people. He he uh, does some threatening things with a, a wrench um, in his mechanic shop. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot that he does that you're like, oh, why am I rooting for this guy? But then he has those moments with his kid or with Kia, and you're like, oh, because he he's a likable person. Uh, he's had some hard times and you know that he sort of wants to do the right thing even if he doesn't necessarily make the right choices. Um, and I think it's really easy for, for books like this uh, to to not put that into their characters and then you're reading and you're like, oh, well, why do I care? Why do I want this person to survive? Why do I want them to pull off a jewelry store heist? Like, why am I rooting for that? <laughs> but um, one thing that I wanted to ask, I assume... Uh, that you were not a getaway driver or pulling off any heists in your past. Although, if you uh, want to break that news now, go for it. But how much research did you have to put into this? Because it's very detailed. Like I learned from this book that if you're gonna uh, commit a crime, use a revolver because it doesn't learn leave casings behind. Like you've got very detailed uh, stuff in here. So where do, did you have to do a lot of research? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, the fifty percent of my research was actual research, like the, like reading and, and looking up uh uh like laws in the state of Virginia about armed robbery, and reading like interviews with with uh, mildly successful criminals and stuff like that. But the other half, I grew up with uh, my cousins, were all gearheads. So when I was twelve or thirteen. I would sneak out of my house and jump in my cousin's 71 um, uh, Maverick and we drive to the other side of town and I would hang out with him while he went on, you know, he competed in illegal or unsanctioned drag races. And I grew up as a little bit of a gearhead. Yeah. Uh, I grew up up as a little bit of a gearhead out of necessity because we didn't have the money to go to a mechanic. So I had to learn how to change the alternator, change the oil, fix the water pump. Uh, you know, uh, I, for the longest time, I would do most of the repairs on my vehicle because A, when we bought a vehicle, it wasn't in great condition. So, you know, it's a rolling wreck. And so B, I was just trying to keep it going as long as I could until we scraped together eight or nine hundred dollars to buy another vehicle. And so some of the things that are in the book are elements of my own life that I didn't have to read the research. I just had to remember. But then there are other things that I did research and I read about, um, you know, I did research about, you know, uh, real life heist uh, uh, characters like Willie Sutton, who was a famous bank robber. He's got a, a famous quote when somebody asked him, why did he rob banks? He said, that's because that's where the money is. And so he had a, <laughs> uh, they wrote a book about his life. He was a bank robber in the 50s. Um, and so I did research about that. Uh, and I tried to combine all of that and then filter it through the characters and the characterizations that I wanted to use. I think, too, uh, a lot of with you having practiced uh, a lot of your writing or starting your writing in fantasy and sci-fi, you know, that that allows your mind to kind of fill in a lot of gaps, too, I think. Right. Whereas a lot of writers who write, you know, really. Uh, realistic stuff and and they research all this stuff they're so uh invested in the most realistic aspect of something that it can it can that can dominate their writing process whereas i think someone who has written fantasy and you know horror and and all that your mind has been you know kind of conditioned to take something and run with it and and not be dragged down by details all that much. That's a good point. Well, I think there is a specific school of, of, of writing that is, you know, concerned with, you know, intricate details. You know, they're, you know, like if you, if you read like, uh, like, especially in the nineties, like if you read like a lot of high tech espionage thrillers, like Tom Clancy or mm. the later Robert Ludlum books that the born identity movies are based on, you know, that that's all about the minutia know of the story of the details of the you know the the uh, spy equipment and the, the technological advances that are you know uh conversant with the spy game and the espionage game um you know the hunt for red october has whole chapters devoted to you know how a nuclear sub runs and there are people that love that like you said though i grew up i really wanted to be a sci-fi writer or a fantasy or horror writer and so what what i what i tend to do in my writing even though i'm writing about realistic 
you know, hardcore, hard-boiled crime, my writing, I tend to kind of wax poetic mm-hmm. in my writing. And a lot of my writing is very prosaic. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of this weird style that I developed accidentally. So I grew up reading like Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith and Robert Block and uh, writers like that or, or Isaac Asimov or Ray Bramberry, uh, folks like that, which a lot of that writing is incredibly beautiful, incredibly uh, rhythmic and, and poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I combined that with the, my influences from, like say, like Walter Mosley or you know, Raymond Chandler, who created the uh, character Philip Marlowe. Um, his style became such a part of mis- of the mystery genre that it's now a pastiche when people do it. It's it's, a, it's almost like parody. Um, and the funny thing about it is, people think it's easy to do that style. They think it's just every three sentences there's a wisecrack, but it's not. It's 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 a it's he he created an art form with it. And I'm not comparing myself to Raymond Chandler at all, but I do tend to try to combine really, really evocative imagery with really uh, utilitarian circumstances. And, and so, like, there's a scene toward the end of the book where they're doing a heist, and there's a, there's a line where uh, sparks are flying up in front of the van that Beauregard is driving. And there's a line that goes like, you know, the the, the sparks washed over the van like a wave of like a, a wave made of shooting stars. Mm. That's really sort of unusual for a hardcore, hard boiled crime novel. But I love combining those two things. I think it, it creates a unique uh, sort of um, s- syntax in the books. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to be a fantasy writer, man. I, I have a, I wrote a, fa- a two part fantasy novel back in 2010 called The Brotherhood of the Blade, which is about these modern, these modern day swordsmen. It's sort of like Highlander meets mm. um, Gangs of New York. And uh, you're talking got, my language you know, right now, man. It's got 14 reviews, but amazing. most of them are good. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, it's a two parter on Amazon. Uh, and it was published by a really gr- good group of people. Um, uh, called uh, Hat, uh, ACS Hatton Cross uh, Publishing, and it didn't really, you know, it just didn't connect. It didn't really go anywhere. Um, I I got multiple horror stories rejected over years, over the years, um, <laughs> lots and lots of rejection of horror stories. And you know, I kind of was just stuck in a rut, man. I, mm. I and, but the funny thing is, when I go back and look at my fantasy and sci-fi and horror stuff, it always tended to lean toward the noir-ish style. Yeah. It had a very, you know, even the fantasy novel, the sword fights are very brutal. They're very visceral sword fights. You know, there's an economy of emotion in those books that is very well, it's very familiar to people that read crime novels. So, you know, I was, uh, I was running away from, I guess, what I was meant to do for a long time. (laughs) Uh, you brought up uh, a lot of sci-fi authors. Lovecraft obviously sticks in our heads because we have a whole freaking podcast named after him. Um, and um, and like going going into sci-fi and fantasy, you you said with Blacktop uh, Wasteland that you did want to tell um, the story of you know African American culture and like have that representation there. How do you feel about? that in fantasy and sci-fi like did you did you deal with that when you were reading a lot of these stories that were predominant predominantly white written stories for white people like yeah so i can answer that i think we'll answer this way so you mentioned lovecraft and you know as a kid as a nine-year-old black kid you know getting a book out of the library and reading through lovecraft and reading like you know you know, uh, reading like *The Color Out of Space*, mm-hmm. or reading like *The Call of Cthulhu*, or reading uh, you know *The Hunter in the Dark*, mm-hmm. or *Pickman's Model*. Uh, you know, you come across something in that where it's like, "Oh, this is really interesting, really interesting." Oh, he's going to say this about people of color. Wow! <laughs> and I think the one thing you learn as a person of color reading is, especially back then. You know, I'm, I'm old. I'll be 47 this year. Back then, you had no choice. You just had to kind of get over it. You know, and, and, you know, there was this argument being made that, you know, a person like Lovecraft was a man of his time. But I think even people back then was like, damn, Howard, slow down. Jesus, <laughs> why'd you name your cat that? Um, but, uh, 
Because here's the thing. My, my argument about that is always, I can read something by Clark Ashton Smith. I can read something by Algernon Blackwood that doesn't have that references. Yeah. Doesn't have that kind of uh, scent, uh, that kind of, uh, you know, jargon, so to speak. Um, I think for me growing up, I was able to appreciate the writing that didn't have people in it that looked like me, but I still yearned for it. I still mm-hmm. wanted it. You know, I, I could read, you know, uh, something by like Robert W. Chambers, like The King in Yellow, and be like, wow, this is incredible. I wonder what it would be like with somebody like me. What would, it, what would the story be about, you know, uh, a, a young African-American kid from the South who discovers, you know, this, 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 you know, this, this cursed play. Yeah. And so I always wanted that. And then what happened was, that's why I started writing it. I, I wanted to see that. I wanted that representation. Um, I think you can appreciate the people and the, the the stalwarts that were sort of the foundations of like sci-fi and fantasy and, and stuff like that, while still acknowledging that there's a missing component, you know. Um, and then like that's why you see writers today, like uh, N.K. Jemison, who's an incredible writer, or the late Octavia Butler, or writers like that, writers of color, or Victor Laval, who are really you know taking that mantle and rubbing, running with it, you know, or the producers, the people who produce Lovecraft Country. Yeah, you know, and really taking those foundational elements and just because that's what all storytellers do. You know, that's what everybody does. That's you know, going back to Shakespeare. You know, you take elements of a story you like and you tell it in your voice. Mm. You know, and I think that's what I think that's what you got to do. But as you know, like I said, I was not, um, I wasn't uh, naive to the fact that you know, I don't, I don't think H.P. Lovecraft likes black people you know i kind of <laughs> knew that but at the same time i was fascinated by you know like you know now rollertep and you know the beast with a thousand young and i you know i wanted to you know i wanted to find a copy of the necro comic-con you know so i think there's this incredible ability that we have as human beings to compartmentalize things yeah um but like i said i i could i could read a book like I said, by like Robert Block, if I wanted to read about the, you know, the Cthulhu mythos, I could read a book by, you know, writers that are now, like people don't even talk about him anymore, you know, like a, a writer from England, like Barry Payne, who was a contemporary of uh, Lovecraft and, and Blackwood and those guys. Um, and, you know, or, read, you know, it, it's just one of those things that's just par for the course if you're a person of color. You, 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 you learn to get around it, but I'm glad that we're at a point in time in in, in literature and in, in in fiction where you don't have to get around it anymore. So you have like those writers and other writers that I haven't mentioned, uh, but you have writers, you know, like K. Jemison, who are writing books that are representing a huge segment of society. Yeah. Um, you know, like I think the the biggest thing is is that again you can look back at the past and look at the foundational principles of whatever genre you're looking at because that happens in crime fiction too and still accept that these are the foundational principles but also accept that there's a lot of room for improvement yeah um so i like that you made the point that you yearned for seeing people who look like you in those books that you were reading and then decided just to go out and and write it basically do you feel that um, Blacktop Wasteland came out at a particularly good time for that? Do you think it would have done been as successful as well-received 10 or 20 years ago? Definitely not 10 or 20 years ago. I, I think, because I think what was happening, what, what happened with Blacktop Wasteland or a book like Mexican Gothic uh, mm-hmm. by Silvio Moreno Garcia, or, um, you know, like I said, or a book, a novella like uh, The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval, is that society had to catch up with the creators society mm-hmm. had to catch up with us and now you've got a whole generation of kids who were raised on fiction that told them that you know fight the status quo don't judge people you know that you know uh, you, you know you got a whole generation of, of progressive kids in their 20s now who want fiction like that who grew up with uh, friends in their neighborhood who were gay straight people of color and so I think now the market is dictating that the market is forcing publishers and agents and all of that to, you know, get behind that kind the, of work. The demand is that's there what now. people want. You know, because at the end of the day, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it really is all about, you know, 
what's going to sell. And if there's a market for it, here's the funny thing. When I used to get, and don't get me wrong, I am not saying that every rejection I got as a horror sci-fi writer was because the editor didn't understand where I was coming from. But I used to get these rejection letters where I call them three-quarter rejection letters where they would tell you, oh, man, I love this story. I love the dialogue. The characters are great. I like the setting. We don't know how to sell it, so we can't publish it. And that's so frustrating. You know, it's so frustrating because, like, okay, so you like the dialogue. You like that it's set in the South. You really think the characters are interesting, but you don't know what to do with it? Like, dude, that's your job. You got one job. Figure it out. We like, we like everything about this book. We just don't know what to do with this book. So do a different book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they always would come up with the excuse, well, we don't think it's going to sell. Or traditionally, those books don't sell. And if all those stories don't sell or, or they're not popular, and like you know, let's be real, like, you know, not to you know, not to uh, uh, pull off anybody's you know rose colored glasses, but if somebody, if a publisher wants to get behind a book, they'll get behind it, yeah. you know. And so I think there just wasn't there wasn't a, an external demand that those books be published. And I think now there is. I think there is a demand that you have, you know, people from the LGBTQ community who want to see characters that represent them. You have people of color who want to see characters that represent them. And they're not being quiet about it. And so that's why, you know, don't get don't get it twisted. I don't think publishers had a, a, a change of heart all of a sudden, you know, because there's been civil unrest. It's the bottom line. They, you know, you look at a book like I'm, I say again, Mexican Gothic. Uh, that was on the bestseller list for like 12 weeks. That's They're going to get behind that. That's what sells. And so I think Black Top Wasteland came in at a time, it, you know, it, it couldn't have come out at a better time. I think if it came out two years ago, it wouldn't have, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it would have been as popular. I mean, there's this idea that publishing and fiction writing is a meritocracy, and that's not true. And yeah. I think we all know that. It's yeah. not. Yeah. I mean, I think that you have to have talent, but you also have to have the support of the movers and shakers. And yeah, you, you gotta know, get lucky there are books and you gotta network become a groundswell. Really oh yeah, definitely. Networking is you know is huge. I mean, I, I used to have this idea that you know I was an artiste and I was <laughs> wanting people to find me. Nobody's gonna come find you and ask you to publish your story in your bedroom. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, you gotta connect with people. You gotta you know even with the pandemic, you you know you do podcast you do readings on zoom you you do uh online uh conferences you know you talk to your friends on social media you keep getting your name out of the, out there i mean that's that's what makes the difference i think i think that we could go on uh, i mean me personally i could ask you questions for the next couple hours about uh how do i get my work published because i've been struggling for years um, but right, I right th- crime. But what That's I think what I really want to know is is uh, Idris Elba is that how you pronounce his name? <laughs> is he going to be in your movie? Is that so? Like I said, <laughs> the rights for Black Tie Wasteland sold to a uh, published a production company called Picture Start, and I think it's okay to say that some of the names that were bandied about were not names that I thought of initially, but once they were said, it was like, wow, that'd be really cool. Um, one of the names that's been talked about for Beauregard is the actor uh, John David Washington. He was most recently in Tenet. That's one of the names that's been attached to it. Okay. Uh, um, I actually personally, I had the dude that played uh, Luke Cage in my Mike Coulter. He was uh, Luke Cage <laughs> on the Netflix series. Yeah, that's he's who awesome. I had in mind when I was writing the book. Um, yeah, so that's what I was thinking of. Um, there's been some talk about uh, Mahershala Ali. Um, two-time Academy Award winner, possibly being attached to it. So, uh, I don't know. I, I had, you know, it's funny. I, if you ask me my fantasy casting, like, yeah, I think it'll be Idris Elba as, as actually, I would have Idris Elba as uh, Beauregard's father, Anthony, in flashbacks. Mm-hmm. My, I would love to have Michael B. Jordan as Beauregard. I'd love to see. Who that. wouldn't want Michael and B. Jordan in anything that they do? <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, it's funny, I saw him when he was Killmonger in Black Panther, and it was like, that's the kind of intensity, mm. I, you know, I was I was like, wow, that'd be interesting. Now, the the, uh, the main, anta- the two antagonists um, in the book, Ronnie Sessions, 
I would love to see uh, there's an actor named Timothy Oliphant who was on the show Justified. Yeah, man. I'd love to see him as Ronnie. And I wrote the part of Lazy, the main villain, Lazy Mother's Ball. I wrote him with Walter Goggins in mind. Uh, the actor Walter Goggins, uh, character actor. He's been in a lot of different things. He's he was in Ant Man most recently. Also, he was on also Justified. Justified. As well. Yeah, man, uh, dude, Justified is one of my actor. favorites. Yeah. Yeah, so I wrote that I wrote that character with him in mind. Like that's who I based the character. If you read the physical description of him, that's who I based him on. Nice. And so I would love, I would love, love, love to see him him do it. But I'm I want to go back to what you were saying about getting published. Okay. Here's the thing. I think the two three pieces of advice I give people, because somebody gave it to me, this ain't my original thought is you got to develop a super thick skin. You, you know, a lot of times you get a rejection. I know for me anyway, I used to get rejections and I wouldn't write for two weeks. I'd just be so sickened. Like, because you never feel like it's your story being rejected. You feel like they're rejecting you yeah. because they don't know how many hours you poured into this this piece of work. They don't know how you stayed up to two o'clock in the morning, you know, Googling up words on the online thesaurus, trying to figure out another word for like glistening. They don't get it. And so it feels <laughs> so personal. But I learned that you just, you got to put that aside. You really got to get that armor on. You got to put that armor on and kind of get away from that. The second thing that I tell people is get your work published wherever you can. And what I mean is a lot of people will tell you, don't publish a story if you're not going to get paid. Right. I'm not saying to make your career off of that, but there were several magazines that told me up front, you know, that we don't pay, but we publish stories that I got my name out there. Uh, you know, just people knew, you know, you could Google my name and you see something. Um, I wrote a novella that was for a charity. Um, I wrote a fantasy novella for a charity uh, anthology called uh, the uh, Shakespeare Goes Punk, Sound and Fury. I wrote this novella. It's a diesel punk sci-fi story based on Othello. And it's a part of an anthology series from Writer Punk Press. And um, it's this, like I said, it's a diesel punk story. So think of Sky Captain and World Tomorrow, but with like Shakespearean characters. And um, that book was for a charity for uh, the SPCA in Michigan. And that book, a lot of people knew me, know me from that from that story, from that novella. And so, so I didn't get paid for that novella. It was a charity thing, but again, it got my name out there. And I think with the way publishing is going and the digitization of publishing, it's really important get your name out there somewhere again i'm not saying to make a career out of giving your work away for free but if you can get two or three stories placed somewhere you know or you know or maybe an anthology where maybe you only get like 20 bucks you know you're not going to be able to live off that but you're going to get your name out there and the third thing i tell people all the time is just read as much as you can i know it sounds trite but for me the more I read, the more I understand where my skill set is. Hmm. I understand what I can do and what I can't do. Yeah. And there's things that I've learned from reading a lot that have cautioned me about maybe trying things that weren't in my wheelhouse. And there's times I've learned things I've learned from reading a lot where I've stepped down on faith. It's like, yeah, I think I can do that. Hmm. And so I, those are the three things that I, I wanted to like wanted to say. We don't we don't generally tell people that they should go read more. I mean, as a rule <laughs> on our podcast about books. <laughs> um yeah and i i agree with uh, i agree with all of that i mean the the idea of of growing a thick skin i think anything you do creatively you have to grow a thick skin right because ultimately you're going to come up against opposition whether it's it's someone who doesn't like your work or someone who doesn't think it's justified in being done and so you have to you have to grow thick skin and and find your own balance there uh but on top of that you know with with um reading especially since we started this project this podcast i've started reading a lot more and seeing how people are are doing certain things you know you you read uh, as a i read a lot of fantasy because that's what i've been writing patrick rothis and you know frank herbert and um um freaking a uh wheel of time jordan 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 
Jordan. I can't remember his name now. <laughs> Robert Jordan. Thank you. Robert Jordan. Um, like seeing how yeah. they develop their characters and 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 what they do to create a story through a character's experiences. Um, just it, it just blew my mind because I always come at it from like this kind of. I guess almost more like a like a Saturday morning cartoon where it doesn't matter what the character does. The action is there and you're you're there to watch that episode and you're going to they're going to walk away, they're going to throw that grenade behind them. It's going to explode and they're just they're moving on to the next episode. But you start to read these books where the characters experiences are the story and it's it's a completely different way of storytelling that I didn't understand when I first started becoming a quote unquote writer. Oh yeah. You know, you mentioned Rothfuss, Patrick Rothfuss. I mean, the name of the wind and the the wise man's fear. You know, he did a thing where he created a, a, a whole new magic system. Yeah. You know, and and and, and that's hard to do uh, in fantasy. It's hard to, and it's hard. And also, what he did was not only did he create a new magic system, but he wrote his story in such a way that it works within the rules he set up. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will do that. You know, you know, uh, do ex machina thing where, oh, I I said that this wand doesn't work against water. Oh, but I didn't mention ice. It'll work against ice. And so it's like, <laughs> come on, man. Come on. And so, you know, uh, really good writers. And But you know, that's, that that idea works in all genres, whether it's fantasy, sci-fi, horror, uh, or crime fiction. Any genre fiction where you're working within a sub-genre or a subculture, there are certain rules that you set up that the trick is, and you really, I think you really know you're onto something, when you solve the problem that you've given your character yeah. that works, it doesn't violate your rules. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, like I hesitate to bring this up because she's turned out to be such a horrible person, but <laughs> <laughs> JK Rowling did this thing, but she's an awful person. God, oh my God, she's terrible. But she did this thing with the elder wand in, in, in the Harry Potter, Harry Potter books that she created a problem and then solved the problem within the confines of the rules that she had established. And, you know, there are other people that do, you know, I can, you know, toss her to the side and not mention her, you know, uh, George R. R. Martin does that. Like you said, Rothfuss is really good at that. Yeah. Frank Herbert was really good at that. I think uh, R.A. Salvatore is great yeah. at that. Um, you know, and that's the thing, but I said that goes across, you know, that goes across genres. You know, if you read, uh, there's a writer named Elmer Leonard who was a, was a f- incredible one of, if not the best crime writers, and he would do things in his books where he would drop you in these worlds, like in the de- you know in the middle of a Detroit mob war or in the deep South uh, working against a crime syndicate, and he would show you the rules of this world, and then he would set up problems that directly conflict conf- conflicted with those rules, and then he would figure out a way to have his characters come out on top and still not violate those rules. And I think that's when you, as a writer, for me, when I'm writing something, whenever I'm stuck, I go back and I look at the rules that I've set up in the story that I'm creating. And I just keep turning that, you know, I keep turning that egg over and over again until I can figure out a way to, to solve the problem within the parameters that I've already established. And I, I hate when a, per, when a writer cheats. I, I really, I don't, you know, I hate that. I hate when a writer cheats, whether it's, a mystery or whether it's fantasy or crime you know like if it's a mystery and it's like oh man there's no way you could have gotten that locked room and it's like oh but you didn't know there was a secret passageway under the, no there was no secret you never told us that so <laughs> I, I hate stuff like that um but i think that's when you know that you're really onto something if you can solve your character's problems within the parameters that you've already established sure yeah I think that's really good writing advice. No, don't, absolutely. Don't be is. lazy. Don't do the Deus Ex Machina, <laughs> like you said. Well, SA, we've we've kept you for quite a while. I've loved this discussion. Um, you've got an exciting year ahead of you. Uh, between the movie and your next book uh, comes out this this coming summer, uh, Razorblade Tears. Can you give us any any info on what that's about? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so, basic Razorblade Tears is a revenge novel. It's about these two fathers, these two men, one black, one white both ex-cons whose uh, sons uh, were gay and were married and they're murdered not long after they get married and so these two fathers these two men of violence decide to investigate the crime because they don't feel like the police are doing their due diligence and so they're seeking you know vengeance for their sons 
but they're also seeking redemption for themselves because neither one of them accepted their son's uh, sexuality when they were growing up, and both of them were, uh, you know, they had a very strained relationship uh, with their children, and so uh, it's about them trying to find out and solve the mystery of who killed their sons, but it's also about them trying to grow as people and uh, find a, a semblance of, like I said, redemption uh, for the way they treated their boys. And that so it takes so place in, the, in a rural southern town, um, and it's it's full of violence, and, you know, garden tools are used in a most uh, disastrous way. <laughs> do you just, um, do you just walk it, around and you're just, like, cataloging things that you can kill people with? <laughs> what, what, what sort of demonic notepad do you keep, sir? <laughs> You know it's funny. I if you go like writers always joke about their Google history, but my Google history is pretty clean because I just Google like like garden tools and, and implements around the house. I love improvising violence. You know what I'm saying? So why buy like why have your character have a switchblade where he can just take a, a beer bottle and break it over a table and stab somebody and throw it with the shards? I I, I love the immediacy of that. Or you know I have a scene in Razorblade Tears where somebody is attacked with a, what's a, a, a southern, it's a tool that I used, to, my grandfather used as a kid. It's called a bush axe. It's like, it looks like a sickle on a long handle. It's a wicked looking a tool. And it looks like something out of medieval times. And I love that. I love that you take this thing that somebody would use or garden shears Ew. or, you know, uh, a shovel, something that's just around the house. And then you flip it and you use it uh, in, in a, as a, in an act of violence. I, I think because it makes, it creates a sense of immediacy with the character you yeah. know it's like this is happening right now this really could happen so i could i could see somebody taking a shovel and cracking somebody in the head with it you but, know uh, yeah razor blade tears comes out in july and i'm very um i'm very proud of that book uh because i think it talks about issues that are again it's a crime novel it's got action it's got violence and you know murderous garden tools but it also talks about like i said growth and acceptance and uh you know you know, talking about LGBTQ issues and homophobia in the rural and rural South, and and you know, idea that you know, love is love. It doesn't matter who you love, as long as they love you back. And so it's it's about that, but it's also you know, told through the eyes of these two very you know, rough hewn, hard boiled men who are not as tough as they appear. Mm. Um, and so, like I said, hopefully people will uh, connect with it uh, right now. I'm in the middle of working on my third book. I'm doing some research. That's going to be a Southern Gothic murder mystery, uh, tentatively titled uh, Black as Sackcloth. Um, and that's going to be, it's basically the plot of that is, uh, it's about the, the first black sheriff in a small Southern town. And on the one year anniversary of his election, uh, there's a shooting at a school that uncovers, uh, he finds out that, um, there's a serial killer that's been using his his county as his uh, dumping ground, oh. and so it's going to be uh, a murder mystery, but also talking about the history of this town. And uh, it's not going to be supernatural. I'm going for that true detective meets justified feel. So that's what mm. I'm I'm working on now. Oh my gosh, I am so excited for both of those. I love murder mysteries, so definitely looking forward to that one. And also um, the crime novel, but the true test will come when we find out if it gets the grandpa seal of approval. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to make stickers for that now. (laughs) I'm aiming for the grandpa demographic. You know, grandpas across the world, as long as I know that they're enjoying my writing, I can sleep at night. (laughs) (laughs) They're the only reviews that matter, and you'll never have to worry about reading them because they're not online. (laughs) (laughs) They'll send me a telegram. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. S A, it's been it's been really awesome to chat with you. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about that you wanted to to throw out there into the world of the interwebs? Yeah, um, real quick, I wanted to drop a few suggestions for people if they want to read some really good writing. It's not going to be all crime related. Um, I have a friend uh, named uh, P J Vernon who's got a crime mystery novel coming out this year called Bathhouse. Uh, that's going to be out uh, in uh, March, I believe. Uh, PJ is an incredible writer, a really good friend of mine, so you should, you should check that out. Um, there's going to uh, my friend uh, <coughs> Kelly Garrett 
is a really good writer. She's got two crime and mystery novels out. You should really check those out. They're amazing. Uh, I have a friend named uh, uh, well, you might you know Robert Robert Cano. Yeah, uh, he's got a, a sci-fi book that just dropped uh, called A Mother's Love. Um, check that out. And I have a friend named Nick Nick Corpron. Uh, who's a, a, a crime and sci-fi writer, um, and he's got a few books out. If you like, uh, you know that sort of uh, far future Blade Runner s type sci-fi, um, he's got a few of those out. Uh, check him out. Nick Corpron's a really great writer, uh, and uh, a guy named Rob Hart who wrote a book called The Warehouse. So, just want to drop a few suggestions for people if they got a if you get looking for a, your next good book to read. Honestly, it, it sounds like we need to start reaching out to you more often. You're you're obviously well read. You obviously know a lot of authors and and have a lot of opinions about a lot of different authors. I think we need to just start, you know, the S. A. Cosby like <laughs> book club within the Between Lewis and Lovecraft brand. He's recruiting you to do a podcast. No. Don't don't fall for it. <laughs> it's like a cult. <laughs> You know, I would I would love to, man, because I love to talk. But man, I got like a whole bunch of stuff that I'm trying to do right now. But we should maybe in the future, we'll see. We'll see how things go. Yeah, man, absolutely. I, the first one's always free, and then people keep coming back. So I know I know how it works. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much for your time, uh, Hannah. Did you have any other questions? Did Did you have like things that you wanted to actually talk about in the book? I mean, I do, but I don't want to give any spoilers. So people I need was, to go read. There it. were so many things I wanted to ask, but I'm like, no, that'll ruin it for people who haven't read it so yeah. I'll, I'll just like keep those questions to myself and in a couple years when when everyone's read it and the movie's <laughs> out i can be like okay now tell me what this meant or like why you did it this way i will tell you this i, I will tell you this the, the the car there's a car in the book it's a 71 plymouth duster mm-hmm. and and that is a metaphor and what happens to the duster is a metaphor for beauregard's life so Ooh. i will say that a lot of people ask me that like what what's the significance of the car and so what you know the way he the way he uh uh reacts to the car in the beginning of the book and the way he reacts to the car at the end of the book is supposed to be sort of his arc of growth as a person nice because i think i'll say this real quick one thing i learned writing this book and one thing i was trying to say is that i think sometimes we look at the past through you know the prism of nostalgia and we're not honest about what has happened to us and who we are. Mm. And sometimes that inability to be honest manifests, manifests itself into holding on to things that we need to let go. Yeah. And, uh, sometimes you, you know, you hold on to the past or the way you down. And, um, and I think that's a uh, kind of, inf- you know, I think that's sort of emblematic of his relationship with that car. So, I think it's anyway, great, man. I, I, think that, that, so I want to just drop that out. <laughs> that exact kind of wisdom is what I love in, in good literature, good books, good stories. So I, I'm excited. I haven't read it yet. I, I went into this. I like talking to authors um, before I read books. Not that I like <laughs> get to talk to J.K. Rowling before I read Harry Potter. But like I, like, I get <laughs> now being able to talk to authors before I read their stuff is really fun. Well, now you get the uh, the metaphor of the duster before you read I will, it. Yeah, so, I'm going to yeah, be reading hard that. into that. Yeah, for sure. So. <laughs> well, man, thank you guys for having me. This was so much fun. All right. I well, appreciate I think- it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. If you again, if you ever want to come back, you know, you're more than welcome. We'll we'll set yeah, up the mics for, for, for you. razor blade tears. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to come. You know, when that comes out or the show comes out, we can do a like a shot by shot analysis <laughs> and talk about like what they got wrong, what they got right, and all the stuff that you can't say as an author, but I can say as a reader. I yeah. can be like, they completely messed up this scene, or why did they cut this character? It yeah. just Elba did a great job. <laughs> I would love that, guys. Oh, man, that'd be so much fun. <laughs> all right. All right, great. Well, let's uh, let's call it there. And uh, all right, listeners, remember, uh, go check out Cosby's work um, anywhere you get books, right? Like, you're you're everywhere now, right? Yeah. It, it, He's on Amazon. Bookstores. He's everywhere. Support your local bookstores. Support your local bookstores. A lot of them either have copies or they can get you a copy. 
Yeah, and then uh, make sure you keep an eye out this summer for his next book. Um, and uh, keep your eyes out for uh, movies and TV shows and video games, I'm sure. We'll get a video game, <laughs> The too. Blacktop Wasteland video game. <laughs> hey, that'd be good. It's like a racing game yeah. and a, yeah. a yeah. shooting game. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, so uh, thanks, guys, and uh, have a good week, and we'll, we'll talk to you guys later. Thank you.